This morning, if you take your Bibles with me and turn to Philippians chapter 1, we'll continue our study through Philippians together. And last week we went down as far as verse 11 in chapter 1, and this morning we're going to pick up in verse 12 and go down as far as verse 21. And if you're turned there together with me, if you would stand out of respect for the Word of God this morning as we read our passage for Bible study. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel." What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed." But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning, and we ask for the assistance of your Holy Spirit to just be able to understand what it is you would say to us from your word this morning. We ask Jesus that you, even as you walked on this earth and taught so many people things about the kingdom of God, being here in the very flesh, Lord, we believe you're alive and are with us this morning. And so we ask that you would be our teacher and that Jesus, you would speak into each and every one of our lives in a personal and a profound and really powerful way from whatever it is we need to hear in our heart and life this morning from this passage of Scripture. So, Lord, you know what we're asking. You know what we need. Prepare us. Make us alert and attentive physically, spiritually, mentally, in every way. And bless your word and speak to us this morning, we ask, believing that's what you want to and will do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's often been said before, and I think rightfully so, that the right perspective makes all the difference. The right perspective makes all the difference. That is so true in many different arenas and facets of life, and it is certainly true as it pertains to spiritual life. That is certainly true as it pertains to eternal life. The right perspective makes all the difference as it pertains to anything relating to the Lord. And I think this passage of Scripture, as we continue to move through Philippians together, I think this passage of Scripture once again kind of drives home that point that the right perspective makes all the difference in spiritual matters and eternal things. And I think Paul, really under the inspiration of the Spirit, indicates that. At this point, you notice in verse 12, as Paul's kind of made some introductory remarks to the Philippians, that at this point now, it's almost as if he starts to kind of give a little bit of a status report regarding his life and his ministry. Uh, what's going on in his missionary endeavors. Again, this is a church that he's planted. We saw he has a real uh, affiliation, a heart connection with them. They've stayed in relationship with one another upwards over some 10 years now. He had planted the church. He had a connection with them, but then the Lord had moved him on to plant other various churches and ministries, but he stayed in contact with them. And rightfully so, Paul, he just takes this section of the letter and he just starts to share some things with them of what's going on in his life and ministry and given his difficult circumstances as we've already talked about you can see by his own words in these verses this morning remember Paul is imprisoned 
And given his difficult circumstances and his challenging situation, Paul's perspective on matters really, I think you would agree with me, are quite different than what you might expect someone in his situation to have at this point in time. Yet it is a great example of what it truly means to live, hear me, a Christ-centered life. His perspective is quite unusual from the natural mind, but it is a great example of what it really means to live a Christ-centered life. Look with me back in verse 12 as Paul's comments begin in this section. He says here to the Philippian believers, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have, I have this circled in my Bible, have actually keyword have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel paul is trying to say look contrary to how it may appear contrary to how it may have seemed paul's difficult circumstances were actually working out to advance the work of god in his life and among the world remember at this time paul's imprisoned in rome his life's confined He's restricted. He, he, he's, uh, in a sense, unable to do what he typically did, which was travel about freely, going to different cities, preaching the gospel, moving around as a pastor, missionary, church planner by calling. Uh, he's unable to continue planting new churches. He's confined at this time in prison. He's awaiting a trial before the Roman court system. And though he is able to receive guests, that is, he's able to receive visitors during this particular imprisonment, by the same token, he is also restricted and he is chained 24 hours a day, we believe, on four to six hour shifts to Roman guards. So every four to six hours, a new guard would come in and they would be shackled up to Paul and he there was chained to a Roman guard continuously. And so it's easy to see how these type of circumstances from a visual perspective, just thinking about what was going on with Paul, how at first glance, those circumstances Paul would in be in, would be quick to cause people to kind of feel a little bit concerned. You can imagine how the Philippian believers would almost feel a little disappointed. This is horrible. Paul is imprisoned. And Paul the apostle, the key figurehead in, in the movement of the gospel, the one who is planting churches, who is just anointed by the Lord and is being used of all people, Paul's in prison. This is horrible. The work of God is, is going to be hindered. And the ministry is going to be diminished. And, and you can hear them thinking, and on top of that, if the Apostle Paul is in prison, that's going to completely intimidate everybody else who's a Christian who's going to think, well, if Paul's imprisoned, if God would let Paul get imprisoned, I mean, I mean, like, isn't Paul God's man? He is the one that the Lord's hand is on. And if the Lord would let this happen to such an anointed, special, useful servant... Oh my goodness, now everybody's going to be intimidated. They're going to be afraid to serve at a level of intensity because they're going to think, well, if that would happen to Paul and if God would let that happen to Paul, what will God let happen to us? I mean, we're, we're not being used anywhere near the way Paul was being used. And you could understand how they would begin to feel a little concerned and apprehensive and a little bit disappointed. And many would look at what had happened to Paul in his imprisonment and they would interpret it as a loss. They would interpret it as, you could say, a, a setback of sorts. They would interpret it some as a total catastrophe that this had actually happened to Paul. And Paul, knowing this concern that they would rightfully be having and how they would struggle with trying to process this, you see here in verse 12, what he does is he takes the opportunity to share with these Philippian believers who would be interpreting what they saw happening from their natural perspective. And he takes a moment now to share with them some things that they might not be seeing or some things that maybe they didn't realize. And that's why he says here in verse 12, listen, brethren, I want you to know, if you don't know, I want you to know, he says, the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance, the advancement, he says, of the gospel. He's saying, look, despite what you think, what has happened to me 
has actually turned out by God's hand and God's design. It has actually turned out as something that is advancing the gospel. That's actually furthering the work of God and his kingdom. And these things, the negative things that have happened, are being used by God to yield positive results. See, God's great with math. God can take negative 5 and negative 10 and, and he can bring a positive number. And God just has a way to take negative things and things that look bad and horrible and tough circumstances and suffering and struggles. And he has a way, Paul's reminding the believers, of taking negative things and yielding positive results and good benefits. So he identifies now in verse 13 and 14, he identifies to them what some of those benefits actually were that God was accomplishing through his own difficult. Though so he says, look, I want you to know this is actually turning out for the furtherance of the gospel. And he says, let me explain. Let me give you some examples. He says, verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren, other believers in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, notice, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul points out two things specifically that were taking place to actually further and advance the gospel and that were having good results out of a negative circumstance. Not to mention, before I, I point those out, consider this. What also happened as a, Paul, a part of Paul being imprisoned. Well, what you're reading this morning and what you and I are benefiting from in our study through the book of Philippians is the direct result of Paul's imprisonment. The prison epistles, Philippians and Colossians and others we have, are the direct result of God allowing Paul to be slowed down so that he could put the, the, the quill to the page and the Spirit of God could use him to inspire and to write Scripture, listen, which has stretched and impacted way further than Paul just preaching in his present generation. It's impacted many generations. It's benefiting people to this day as the result of where Paul was. But Paul says, let me tell you two things that are beneficial that God's doing through my difficulty. First of all, in verse 13, he says, look, unsaved people are being reached. People, as the result of what I'm going through, are hearing the gospel and getting saved. He says, verse 13, it's become evident, notice, to the whole palace guard, to all the different palace guards who are coming in and in rotations and in shifts being chained to Paul every four to six hours he says it's becoming evident to them that my chains are in Christ I want you to think about this here's the apostle Paul imagine being chained for four to six hours to the apostle Paul what do you think Paul's going to do he's going to say hey do you know why I'm actually in prison have you heard yet let me know why why are you in prison and paul would begin to share but well here's the reason why and he would begin to share his testimony and he begin to share how god transformed his life and how he now preaches christ everywhere he goes and and sometimes as a result of that there's antagonism and resistance and he ends up getting thrown into prison and as the direct result of paul being chained to roman guard after palace guard after palace guard what's paul doing he's sharing jesus with people and those Paul wasn't chained to them. They were chained to Paul. This is a captive audience. This is a, this is a Christian and certainly a preacher's dream. You can't get up and walk out. You can't do anything. You know, he could just share continuously. What were they going to do? They were working their shift. They were chained to this guy for four to six hours at a time. And you can imagine as they not only would hear it, they would then go back and, and people were talking about this very unique prisoner, Paul who was there because of his great love and passion for Jesus, and people were getting saved and hearing the gospel on a greater level as a direct result of that. And by way of application for us, listen, this morning, please know that there are times, I truly believe, that the Lord may allow us as Christians to kind of be chained to a situation or chained to a circumstance uh, maybe you feel like you're chained to the job that you are or the people you have to work next to or your fellow co-workers and think, oh my, this is like a prison having to work next to him or work with this person every day. Or, or quite honestly, maybe even you're a home mom you're thinking, oh, I'm chained to the house and to being with children. Listen, all of those things 
can sometimes be by design because maybe God has you restricted to where you're at. Could you consider for the sake of the eternal destiny of the soul of someone who doesn't know Jesus? And perhaps God so loves, as he does the world, the soul of one or a few unconverted people that he has you, in a sense, connected to, whether you enjoy it or not, for the sole purpose of you being there and your witness for Jesus Christ and your relationship with the Lord and the way that you live your life and the conversations that happen for the reason that he wants to reach those particular individuals. And sometimes the Lord has us in those spots. And rather than falling prey, as we all can do, when we feel like we're maybe kind of chained to something that we don't want to, rather than falling prey to begin complaining about our situation and what's, or complaining about what's happened to us and letting that be what consumed us, what about instead stepping back and considering the spiritual reality, you know what, God does superintend over everything and maybe even what's happened to me and where I am at and where I'm stationed is about more than just me. Maybe it's actually about them. Maybe it's about him or her. And would you consider that God loves people so much that maybe he has stationed you right where you're at and has even used and allowed what things have happened to you and are happening to you to put you in a place where you can share the gospel with those children that you spend, it seems, 24 hours a day with seven days a week so they can grow up to know Jesus. Or to share the gospel with that friend or that co-worker or person that God has joined you with. Paul writing to the Colossians in chapter 4 verse 5 and 6 said this, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. One translation says this, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Puts a whole new perspective on why sometimes the Lord has us where we're at for the souls of those who don't know Jesus. That was Paul's case. He says, look, this is actually turning out for the furtherance of the gospel. Prisoners, he says, as well as certainly fellow palace guards, they're hearing about Jesus and being reached, and many of them were getting saved as a result of Paul being there. Secondly, in verse 14, he points out as well that another thing that was actually happening for the furtherance of the gospel is not just that unsaved people are being reached, but he says, verse 14, that believers in the Lord were being encouraged and were being emboldened to serve Jesus more passionately. He says, secondarily, most of the brethren as well in the Lord, they've actually become not intimidated, but he says they've actually become confident and are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, again, envision how this would happen. As some of the Christians saw Paul faithfully serve Jesus and as a result be imprisoned for his faithfulness to the gospel and struggle in some of the ways that he was now because he was so true and he was so on target and dedicated and motivated to serve the Lord, there would be other believers who would no doubt look at that example and guess what? They were inspired by it. And they would look at what was happening to Paul and some of them would no doubt say, wow, I mean, if this guy's willing to go to prison for the gospel's sake, and if this guy's willing to stay faithful even in prison, telling people about Jesus, man, what am I doing? Why am I so afraid to talk to my friend about Jesus? This guy's risking his neck for Jesus. This guy's putting everything on the line for Jesus. This guy gave up his whole life and his comforts. and his, This guy gave up everything for Jesus. What am I giving up for Jesus? And see, there's something that happens in lives at times where sometimes you and I enduring or maybe experiencing challenges and difficulties in our own lives, sometimes the hard things that we go through can actually be used by God to then convict and to challenge other fellow believers in such a way where they then, as a result of that, maybe set aside some fears that have been holding them back. Or maybe they're challenged as they look at what we endure and how we handle it and our commitment to Christ, where they find themselves challenged in a way whereby they say, you know what, I need to set aside these really you know, petty excuses that I let consume me to keep me from being 
as passionate to serve the Lord in the ways that I should. And this was happening with Paul's life, and many times it can happen with us. As something happens to us, and then people see the way that we handle what happens to us in a victorious way to stay devoted for Christ, sometimes it causes something to happen in other people where they get inspired and they find themselves encouraged and I've seen it many times like what Paul describes here and other Christians rise up to another level of devotion. You know, one of the most wonderful compliments that I received as a result of transitioning from pastoring at Calvary Chapel of York for 13 years and taking a step of faith and, and turning the church there over and our comfort zones and the stability of all of that and transitioning our family here was someone who said to me, do you know what? I want you to know something. What you are doing is probably the most powerful sermon you have ever preached to us in 13 years. Now, you know, first I think, man, that's a real... It's pretty bad Bible teaching for 13 years. You know, it's pretty sad. You, know? you mean what I'm not saying is the best sermon I've ever preached? But I understood what they meant by that. What you're choosing to do to step out in faith and say, for the kingdom's sake and all of this doesn't matter as much as eternity and souls and people and, and being willing to serve others rather than just stay comfortable. That, that was the idea. And see, in our lives, sometimes, look, you may be going through something, you may go through something. Trust me when I tell you, sometimes God may allow you to be in something and go through something for the sole purpose that he may want to use you to encourage other believers. And your faithfulness to stay true or your willingness to take steps of faith or make sacrifices and serve the Lord, people see that in other Christians, they get inspired by that. And God uses that to fan a flame in other people who, like Paul the Apostle, he says, listen, I want you to know, he says, as a result of what's happened to me, he says, now other people, they're getting more bold. And they're speaking about Christ to another level. And Paul's experience and his perspective is a great reminder to us in these verses that things are not always how they look and they appear, especially at first glance. God has a way of superintending over life affairs and he can take things, even suffering, even hardships, even difficult things, things that seem like disappointments and setbacks in our lives, problems, and God can make them turn out ultimately for something good and bring about something wonderful instead. The Bible is filled with examples of that truth, of how God can take negative experiences and yield positive results in the life of people just study the life of people like joseph which you've been studying on wednesday nights or consider moses or david or as well ruth and esther and daniel they're all pictures of that very reality how things aren't always how they seem at first something very negative may happen something that seems like a problem a, a bad thing a hard suffering difficult thing and God can turn that around and yield something wonderful and bring good results. You know, what Paul's describing here really is a life illustration of Romans 8.28, which basically tells us this in promised form, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Please hear, that is a Bible promise, however, for Christians. And I would be untrue to the context of the Word of God to tell you that if you're not following Jesus Christ, that that always directly applies. Because that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purpose, who set their course and heart to say, I love you, God. I want to live for you, God. I want to follow you, God. God says, listen, when you're my child, I take care of you. When you belong to me and you're following me and your heart is towards me, God says, I will coordinate everything that happens in your life ultimately, no matter what happens to you or what you go through. Because we still go through difficulties. Cancer happens to Christians. Christians lose jobs. Christians have financial problems. Christians have marital problems. But God says, but if you just love me and you're called according to my purpose, which if you're a Christian, you are, God says, I promise you can know, not hope, you can know all things will work together for the good. God will work his math through his wisdom, his power, sovereignty, and yield something good out of that in our lives. And man, that is an incredible Bible promise as a Christian to be able to know, wow, that's what my father does for me. Listen, as a father, 
wouldn't you do that for your kids? Wouldn't you try and make anything in their life always somehow turn around and work out the best for them possible? Of course we would. Well, God's a greater father. He's a loving father, and what a great promise. And Paul was experiencing that. His life was a very illustration that sometimes things happen to us, sometimes things happen to others, and our first response, our initial observation is, oh no, we're, we're concerned or we're frustrated or we're disappointed, yet God does actually use even hard things to work in ways where ultimately he can further and notice in this case he can further the spiritual work he does among people's lives again psalm 119 if you want to write in your notes psalm 119 verse 67 as well as verse 71 illustrate that very truth and please see before we move on what paul is saying to us here through the spirit's inspiration and i think is this is that god's highest agenda God has lots of agendas in the world, but God's highest agenda in everything that happens is working in people's lives for spiritual and eternal good. Paul says, what's happened to me? Well, that's good. You're in prison. Well, it doesn't seem too good. But Paul says, look, God's highest agenda in everything he does, superintending over circumstances, wrong things people do, right things people do, evil in the world. God's highest agenda is coordinating everything that happens for the spiritual and eternal good of souls. And God will open doors for the good and the eternal purposes of people. God will close doors for the good and eternal purposes of people. God will let the bottom drop out for the good and the eternal purposes of people. God will bless and do wonderful things for the good and the eternal benefit of people. God will let things happen to me. God will allow things to happen to you because he cares about the good and the eternal purposes in people's souls. That's his highest agenda. I assure you, when he's working in your life and he's working among the world, that's God's perspective. And Paul had God's perspective and explains that here as he spoke to the Philippians. Verse 15, he then says, And some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former, Paul says, they preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Take notice Paul's perspective. He had come to learn that people preached Christ and people did works and ministry and so forth, both from, you see what he says, right motives and wrong motives. Paul had come to learn by observation that both types of motives exist in ministry. There are some with good and right motives. There are some with wrong and bad motives. The Bible indicates there were and there will always be people who preach Christ and serve in ministry from wrong motives. Paul mentions here a few of those wrong agendas or bad motives. Verse 15, he says, from envy and strife. Verse 16, he then says, from selfish ambitions and not sincerely. These are wrong motives. Envy and strife speaks of those motivated by jealousy or competitiveness in their spirit, whereby something, you know, something in the perversity of our sinful human nature can in some way drive some people to want to preach the gospel or to serve the Lord even in ministry primarily to be noticed primarily to be followed like they see other people being followed and then something in the perversity of their spirit makes them crave and yearn for the same thing and it drives them on. For example, people would observe the Lord using Paul and then the jealousy of the attention they saw Paul getting or the, the platform publicly that it gave Paul to serve in the way that it did, something then within them would begin to make them crave admiration for themselves to crave attention in a similar way for themselves, which would then, as it does sometimes, drive people with an unhealthy need to just want to be recognized or to want to be acknowledged or to serve something in their ego that needs to be recognized or admired or approved and affirmed. And tragically, here's the tragedy of this, tragically, such individuals that do that very quickly seems begin to fall prey where ministering almost becomes it almost becomes like a competitive business market whereby they're being driven whether they'd admit it or not driven by almost a desire to just want to be more successful 
It's almost like the business. We have to gain more customers. We have to get more followers or keep up with... And, and something in the perversity of that struggle begins to then drive a person in that direction where they're motivated really to just satisfy some internal thing in their heart and their heart begins to be moved in a direction with a wrong motivation. He also mentions as well selfish ambition, which is basically just a term that speaks of pride and self-love that causes somebody to pursue their own self-advancement. When you look at the root word of selfish ambition, that root word actually speaks of campaigning for office or position, like somebody who's running for election. That's what the term speaks of, campaigning for office or position, and it's also translated to court popular applause, to actually be courting for the applause of people, to seek admiration. It causes a person to be self-seeking and pursue their own interests above others. It leads them to tragically even preach the word of God to obtain some selfish personal benefit for their own life or to actually minister and do spiritual works to fulfill some need inside their own heart or their own ego. And it's a very tragic thing, but yet Paul says this is just a reality. It's something that does take place. And those who do such things, notice Paul says here, they actually can still preach Christ accurately. They can still preach Christ accurately, but Paul says, but they don't do it sincerely. They're preaching Christ, but he says accurately preaching doesn't mean that they're preaching from a motive of sincerity. In other words, the motive behind their preaching or doing God's work, it's insincere. It's impure, unfortunately. It's flawed with an unhealthy agenda. In Paul's case, he mentions in our verses here that such who were doing things, he says in his day, were endeavoring, Paul says, to add affliction to my chains. In other words, those who were doing it in Paul's day, Paul recognized that they were doing it in a sense just to be spiteful because they wanted to just sabotage the Apostle Paul to really just advance themselves further along. Now on the other side of that, Paul himself as well as others, he mentions Timothy in chapter 2 who had a pure motive for ministry. Paul says there are others who serve in ministry and they have pure hearts and they preach Christ and they serve the Lord and do works of God from right motives. In these verses, he points out two things specifically. Those with right motives, Paul says, they do such from number one, good will, he says, verse 15. And in verse 16, he says, those who have right motives do such out of love, from good will and from love. These are right motives to preach the word of God, to share Christ and to serve people. Goodwill speaks of a kind-hearted concern for others. Goodwill speaks of a genuine interest to just want to help people. The word love, really, we could put it this way, is just the opposite of selfish ambition, which was the wrong motive. Love is the complete opposite of selfish ambition. Love esteems the value of other people before ourselves. And love is willing to say, I'm willing to sacrifice for the benefit of another. I'm willing to go without so that other can experience the benefits and it's the exact opposite of selfish ambition it's always putting others before ourselves and love please hear me ladies and gentlemen is the highest and the purest motivator to want to serve the lord love that is the purest motivator to want to preach the gospel to share the word of god to want to serve in the works of the lord is love whereby we experience god's love for us personally and we're experiencing the love of God in our own life. And then as the result of that, we respond out of our love for the Lord and our love for people to then do the things that we do to preach Christ or to serve others. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said this. He said, for the love of Christ is what compels us to preach to men that they should be reconciled to God. Do you hear that? Paul says, it's the love of Christ. That's what compels us to tell men to be reconciled to God. And those who preached with right motives, Paul mentions in our verse here, verse 17, those with right motives, love and goodwill, they realized that Paul was appointed by God and that he was being used by God to defend the gospel. 
So those with right motives in that day, they had a respect for the spiritual authority. They recognized in Paul the apostle's life. Hey, this is a man who God's ordained, and because of that, their hearts were pure. They had no hidden agenda, no competitive attention. They just wanted to come alongside what God was already doing in Paul's life and what God was doing to advance the gospel through he and his fellow workers minister and say, hey, how can we come alongside of that? How can we supplement that? And they just had a pure intention to want to help the work of God. And for those of us who are here this morning, two things let me say in relation to this. First of all, let us, I almost want to say, and I'm just going to say it once for all, accept and realize the reality that people who preach Jesus Christ, people who teach the word of God, and people who serve in ministry, there will always be the existence of those who do it from right motivations and those who do it from wrong motivations. And that will never change. There's nothing new under the sun. It will always be that way. Paul acknowledged it in his day, and the same is true today. There are people who do it for a right motivation and a wrong motivation. Let us be more concerned about this. Lord, would you help me guard my heart that I would do what I do for you as a Christian from a right motivation, with a pure motivation. And Lord, protect me, protect me from my capability to begin to have an unhealthy motivation or a wrong or impure agenda for why I might do what I do. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul said this, let all that you do be done with love. See, I found in my own life, it is good at times to examine ourselves. It's good at times to step back and test periodically, maybe our reasons or motives for why we're doing things. Hey, this morning might be a good occasion right where you're at right now to, to ask yourself the following question. Why are you currently doing what you're doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you serving in the capacity that you're serving? Why do you want to serve in the role that you serve in? Why do you want to maybe do the thing that you have on the horizon? Why? What's the real reason behind it? What's the motivation behind it? Maybe there's some decision you're about to make. Can I ask you, why do you want to make that decision? Is it because you want to grow spiritually and you want to serve the Lord? Or is it because you have some agenda and something in selfish ambition is driving you to want to do it for yourself? What's the real purpose behind it? It's a very vital thing to ask ourselves. Motives matter. Because motives, right and wrong, will influence the ways in which we operate in our life. And I tell you this, motives matter to God. They do matter to God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, Each one's work will become clear, for the day of Christ will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. The Bible tells us, that there's coming a time when we will stand before Jesus and not just what we did will be evaluated, but why we did it, of what sort it is. What was the reason I did what I did? It matters to the Lord. Important to keep our hearts in a proper place in relation to those things. Verse 18, Paul, speaking of these right and wrong motives he was aware of, and those who did preach Christ from envy and competitiveness and selfish ambition, Paul, in relation to that, verse 18 says, what then? In other words, what should I do in response to this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Take notice that Paul did not become overly concerned about the motives of others, but instead simply focused on and rejoiced on the message of Jesus Christ still going forth. Now, Please do not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not and he would not ever rejoice if the message was wrong. Please don't mix up those two words, motivation and message. Paul was not rejoicing even though false gospels were being preached. Paul would never rejoice if the wrong message was being preached. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul very strongly stood against and refuted a different gospel being preached. In fact, Paul said, those who preach a different gospel, let them be accursed, let them be damned. If the message is wrong, Paul would not rejoice. 
He would refute and stand against that. What Paul is speaking of here with the Philippians, this discussion, is not the content of the message being off target. Because Paul says they still preach Christ. It wasn't the content of the message. It was the condition of people's hearts. It was the, just the motive of why they were preaching Christ. Again, did Paul still disagree with it? Does God still dislike a wrong motive? Absolutely. But the conversation here is not about the message. The issue here is not a wrong message. It's just a wrong motive. The wrong motive for preaching Christ. And because at least the message of Christ was still being proclaimed, Paul was able to step back and say, you know what? I'm aware that people preach Christ from wrong motives. I'm not that naive, Paul would say. I'm aware that there are people who do ministry and, and, and share Christ and preach the gospel and have very wrong motives in their heart. And he says, what then? The idea, Paul says, so what's, the language indicates, so what's my feeling about this matter? Or Paul would probably be saying, I know what you're wondering. What's my primary response to these people doing this with a wrong motive? And Paul says, look, do I spend all my time and energy on attack campaigns? going around criticizing and, and exposing and revealing everybody who's doing it from a wrong motive, Paul says, I don't really see much fruit in that. What, 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 what's going to be the benefit of that? He says, what I do is instead, I realize that God will deal with people's motives. God will deal with people's motives in his way and in his time. What I do, he says, I retreat and just rejoice in the fact, you know what, at least Christ is still being preached. At least, at least something else isn't being preached. At least Christ is still being preached. People are still hearing about Jesus and having the opportunity to respond. Yes, I disagree with why they do what they do, Paul says, but I'm able to remain focused on the main concern, the primary goal. People are still healing about Jesus. They're able to respond to Jesus. And can I say that attitude displays a tremendous depth of Christian maturity? To be able to step back and have the depth of wisdom to trust the Lord in such things and not allow himself to get overly consumed in this kind of a thing, but to just kind of separate himself and say, look, I don't agree with such folks. I certainly wouldn't partner with such folks. But Paul would say, look, I'm willing to just let God sort things out in people's lives. God is more than able to oversee his work. And he says, I'm able to step back and to just realize my primary responsibility is to preach Christ and stay true in my own heart condition. And he says, I'm not entitled to play God. And God will deal with people's motives in his way and in his time. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul cautioned the believers there about the distraction of critiquing other ministries too commonly. He said, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will reveal the counsels of the hearts. Tremendous maturity. Tremendous wisdom that Paul realized. I can get all caught up and consumed in this or I can say, you know what? God's God and let me stay true to what I'm supposed to do and let God work in the lives of other people at a certain point. Verse 19, he goes on to say, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance, he says, through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So here's Paul, he's imprisoned, but it seems he has this sense in his heart that the Lord was gonna make things turn out for whatever way was best. And he realized, I don't know how it's going to turn out, Paul says, but what I am dependent upon is this. I'm dependent upon, he says, your prayers for me. And he says, I'm also dependent upon the supply of the Spirit of God to help sustain me in what I'm going through and whatever the Lord ultimately does. Interesting, again here, you see this cooperative simultaneous thing of humanity and divinity working together. Paul says, I'm utterly dependent upon your prayers and that you would be seeking for God to work. But he says, I'm also dependent upon the supply of the spirit of Jesus himself to be the one that does work to help me in my situation, to work in my circumstances. And Paul understood and we need to realize the Lord's deliverance it can come in lots of different ways. Sometimes the Lord delivers us out of something, right? 
And we love that. Lord, deliver me. Get me out of this. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he delivers us out of a situation. Other times the Lord delivers us through a situation that we need to go through and that God allows us to remain in, but he delivers us through it by helping us to be sustained by not being overwhelmed or falling apart or disintegrating in the process. And he supplies by the Spirit of Jesus Christ the grace of God that we need to go through what we do. That's why Paul will say in the fourth chapter, I've been in plenty, I've been in one, I know how to abase, I know how to abound. Here's what I've learned. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When it's easy and when it's hard, the only way I can do it is through the supply of the Spirit of Christ who strengthens me. Paul had learned that reality and such is often true for us. Notice his perspective in verse 20 though. He had one primary hope and what was it? That Jesus Christ would be magnified in his life. Paul's foremost concern was not that his circumstances be what he wanted them to be. Paul's foremost priority was not just having his own way. It was that whatever happened in his life, that the Lord Jesus would be exalted and honored through it. Paul says in verse 20, look, whether by life or by death, he's saying, I don't know. I don't know if this trial is going to result in my death. And if it results in my death and I pray the way that I die would give so much glory to Jesus Christ that people would see Christ and be drawn to Christ by the way that I finish if this is the time I'm supposed to die. And if I'm freed and I live on, then I pray that my life will continue to reflect Jesus Christ and I'd be useful for Jesus Christ. And Paul's heart and his great desire and determination was whatever the Lord allows, I just pray that it is a catalyst to bring more glory to Jesus and that more people would see Jesus. What, what a wonderful, mature attitude. Look what Paul then declares in verse 21. He says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul makes this declaration, if you would, what I think, it's kind of just like the summation of his Christian life from start to finish. Paul says, To live to live was all about, and it was all for what? Jesus Christ. To live. And to live is basically what encompasses your passions. It's what encompasses my pursuits. To live is basically the purpose of your existence. It's what drives you. It's what directs you. It's what gives you the desires that you then seek to be fulfilled. Again, again, if I can, can illustrate, not that I'm picking on any one particular category, but in a, a, a sure area like this, we would probably understand what I mean if I say for some people to live is surfing. Right? Most of us, it can, to live is surfing. What are the waves doing? You know, and everything operates. Some of you that may have been your life, some of you may still be. And everything operates on to live is to surf. I may do other things, but to live is to surf. I mean, whatever I got to do to surf, whatever. And it just, it's the driving thing. It's what characterizes the life. It's what characterizes everything about the life and what drives a person. And Paul says, for me, in the same way, for me to live is Christ. For me, Paul says, for me to walk with and serve Jesus Christ in any way I can, that's what life is about. Paul was saying, as far as I'm concerned, my existence and my experience, it's all wrapped up in Christ. The reason that I exist, my primary purpose, Jesus Christ was his passion. Jesus Christ was his pursuit. Jesus was the reason he got out of bed in the morning and his foremost desire for living each day was to live it for Jesus. It wasn't to live it for other things and it wasn't even to live it for other people. And Paul says, because of that, then to die is gain. You can say that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To make a gain is to get a benefit or an advancement. Paul says, look, to live is Christ, so therefore, the day I die, I'm going to gain a blessing. I'm going to get to finally be with Christ. And I'm going to get to be in heaven. This was a single focused man and for us this morning, would you agree it's fair to say everybody lives for something? True? Everybody in this room, on this planet, everybody lives for something. For some people to live is career. For some people to live is money. 
For some people to live as success or to live as education or to live as a sport that they're passionate about or a hobby they're passionate about. For some people to live is, you know, fulfillment and pleasure. For some people to live is some gratification of something they have to have continuously that dominates their life. For some people to live is friends. Young people so often to live is their friends. To live is friends and fun and entertainment. Even good things and important things. For some people to live as their spouse. They live for their husband. Or they live for their wife. Some of us at times to live as our children. And those may even be good things. But that's not the way to live. Here's why. Because to live for all those other things. When you die it's a loss. To live for money. When you die you lose. To live for success when you die. You've lost everything. To live for your children when you die, that's a loss. To live, for your, to live for anything else is a loss when you die. Only when you have Paul's motto, to live is Christ, then it's win-win. To live for Jesus, then when you die, it's a gain. It's win-win that way. And for us this morning, as we conclude our time together, can I challenge you, evaluate your life today. Can you honestly say, I have to search my own heart throughout the week. Can you honestly say that you can agree with what Paul says there about your own life with credibility? Can you say, for me, I'm living for Christ? Or would you honestly have to say, for me to live, honestly, for me to live, it seems like is, and you fill in the blank. And if that's the case this morning, can I encourage you? Why not make a change? It's good to look to Jesus in faith for salvation. That seals your eternal destiny. It's good to look to Jesus in faith for salvation. But it is a whole nother thing to live for Jesus by abandoning yourself to him as the Lord of your life in its fullness. And today, I would challenge you, I challenge us, are we living for Christ or are you living for Christ the way that you once know that you lived for Christ and if not why not make a change why not today right here right now say you know what Lord I'm going to decide to live differently I'm going to decide to live for Christ I'm going to decide to live for Jesus Christ. And for some of you here this morning, maybe even one of you here this morning, God alone knows the soul condition of every person. Maybe for you, for the very first time, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe for you, the very first time, you need to finally decide to say, you know what? I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question? If you're not a Christian and you're not following Jesus Christ, can I ask you a question? Be truthful. Aren't you tired of living for other things. If you are, Jesus would have two words. He'd say to you in love, follow me. And you can choose today to live for Jesus Christ. When we